Welcome to the Ritual House Podcast, a show about the rituals we practice, the new ones we create, and the many ways rituals help us live deeper, more meaningful, and more connected lives. I'm your host, Tova Leibovic Douglas, and allow me to be the first one to say, welcome home. Hello, listeners. I have had one of those days, weeks where I'm like, what am I doing? What is this ritual house business that I'm building? What am I doing? Do you ever have those weeks, days where you're like, what am I doing? This thing that, you know, I'm creating, co-creating with all of you. So I've been really thinking about like what this thing is, why it matters, why it matters to me, why it matters to others. And what I've been noticing when talking to a lot of different people, clients that I'm working one-on-one with, groups that I get to do and uh, teach in person or over a Zoom, is people are seeking something that does not exist yet. It sounds a little weird to say, right? Like, I guess that is the act of seeking, is figuring it out, trying it on. But I think what we are seeking, and I am included in this seekingness, it's something that is like not something we can see right now. I mean, and all of us are trying different things on, and some of those things really work for some and not for others. But what I feel is so important is to build something that allows for that seeking to come in, in lots of different forms. And it's why I'm just really loving doing this podcast, because it's inviting so many different perspectives, so different from mine, perspectives that are not mine, perspectives that are different from one another. And it's allowing for a conversation that seeps into the undertones of, I think, what's happening in the world. And I know that what we're doing on here is not actually simple and actually not straightforward. And I think that's why sometimes it feels really challenging. I'm actually wanting to share a little gratitude to today. This wouldn't happen. This, this ritual house podcast would not happen if it were not for some really important people. And I want to just like name them out. One is Ellie, Ellie, my podcasting sound editor, Ellie Unger Sargon, who is someone that I met long ago through a program called new ground that we did a fellowship we did together. And I tell him this, so I feel comfortable sharing it with you all. I did not agree with when I met, like I did not, I could never imagine becoming friends with much less having him produce my podcast. But what I am noticing and what I think is so important is becoming friends with him and having him actually lift up some hard truths that I need to hear as someone that is trying to speak my truth, but is scared to a lot scared to hurt people, scared to say the wrong thing that will get me in trouble. I have this like rebellious streak in me that like has like a lot of fire, a soul on fire. I feel like I am, but then I stop myself because I don't want to, you know, hurt people. And I think he's been super helpful at like reminding me of my why. And I, I'm so grateful for him for, for all that he's done. I'm really grateful for my podcasting partner for not your Jewish mother. Eliana Yolka, Rabbi Eliana Yolka at Addis Israel. The amount of patience that she had with me for those years recording our podcast is like incredible. And without that podcast, this podcast would not exist. And I'm really grateful. Really grateful for my friend Ellie Eleanor, who is one of the best mom friends I've met and also consulted and helped me sort of craft like my why and my vision for this. And continues to help me think deeply about a lot of topics that are hard for me to always articulate. And and she challenges me in a a really beautiful way. Um, And then finally, Mustafa Zeno, who's a guest in the first episode, super grateful for him for being the first guest, but also for making me feel confident enough to do this and for his really deep and beautiful friendship with me. And oh, one more person, Jenna Freeman, who was a camper of mine and now a friend and a supporter and a, and just a great ritual house person, but also an incredible gifted collage artist. The artwork that's for the ritual house is thanks to her. And also she was the first one that helped me see that this thing that we're building is something that is needed, that's needed, that people are needing it and wanting it. Anyway, I, I'm just sharing all this gratitude because I think it's helpful to remember that we're not alone. Like it's not just us doing the things. There are people out there that are here 
to help. Okay. I share that in case you're like at all stuck. I think the gratitude practice can really unstick us. Okay. The episode today is with a childhood friend, Neely Salem. She's wild and great. And like I've been sharing, I'm bringing on guests where I disagree with them or we like think differently about things. And I think it's beautiful. I think that's what makes the world go round. And I think Neely, she's always been this really incredible soul with like so much to generate in the world and contribute and and from like a really beautiful place. And I've always really admired her and have felt like a kin like a kindred spirit of some kind with her. Like I like I just feel so happy to have her in my life. And I respect and love how she is living into a vision that she has for herself and for the world. And I really respect and love that. And I'm challenged by it because it's a little bit slightly different of a vision that I have for the world. Although we are kind of like in line in a way, it's kind of this interesting thing. Last week, I shared that there's not a lot of Jews that really think about chosenness, but this week you're going to hear like that there is, there are some, you know, and I think that that's really important to wrestle with that viewpoint, whatever, whatever comes up for you. And to also like listen in with an open heart. There's a lot of Torah that Neely has to teach. She's teaching me a lot. And through one shofar blast at a time, um, uh, you'll get that reference once you listen to the episode. Anyway, I'm really glad this ritual house of ours, this home of ours is becoming more enriched by like all different spiritual traditions and belief systems and faith and grateful that Neely is here to try to build a better world than the world that exists. Here is Neely. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Ritual House. My guest today is just delicious, really, really delightful. Her name is Neely Salem. She has a master's in nonprofit management and philanthropy studies, is an ever-smiling, this is true, Torah-loving, drum-playing, nigun-singing, narrative therapist. She's a speaker and a teacher of Jewish studies. Neely is originally from Los Angeles, California, and she graduated magna cum laude and was honored with Comparative Study of Philosophy and Religion Award with the highest distinction. After years of chazanut and vocal performance and acting, fundraising for various organizations and causes, and directing homeless shelters, she took off to explore the world for a decade while researching the psychology, personal growth practices, spirituality, and religions of many cultures across 50 different countries. Neely feels incredible gratitude for the lessons she learned along the way and for the springboard these journeys became for a meaningful chapter of life in the Holy Land. Neely made Aliyah in 2009. She learns and teaches Torah, speaks to groups and practices as a narrative therapist internationally. As a certified narrative therapist, Neely hopes to be a kind, curious visitor of your culture as she views the client as the expert of their own individual culture. She hopes to help clients find new pathways and is available for internal resources to guide themselves more effectively in Baruch Hashem, which means blessed God, joyfully through life. Neely currently lives in Los Angeles. She teaches weekly Parsha classes and leads private ceremonies, rituals, and women's circles. I am really so glad to welcome Neely here today. It's a particular joy for me because I have known Neely since I was probably like four or five. She's a couple years older than me in school, and I have always been a fangirl of hers. Um, <laughs> We were joking as we were texting to prepare for this that um, it's kind of like we're we're still children talking to each other in the hallways of our Jewish day school, but we're not. We're older now, and I've been able to watch Neely and her career from afar and her life's purpose from afar, and it's been really meaningful, and she's just one of the best people. She was the best when we were kids, and she still is. And that's how you know a really good person, is you know their inner child, and her inner <laughs> child is quite wise. So welcome, Neely. I'm really, really glad to have you here. Thank you. Fun to be here. So do you have an early memory of ritual in your life? I do. Well, we were kids, and we were at Sinai, and my family wasn't that, let's say, observant, but we were into all the Jewish stuff. 
but I think I may have been, it was like before the days of Camp Ramah and all like the official learning. And I remember going over, maybe you recall this name, to Shuli Seidlerfeller's house. Yeah. And they kept Shabbat. And we didn't keep Shabbat. I mean, we had Shabbat, but we didn't like follow the rules or anything. But they did. And I was over there on a Saturday. I could, uh, we could actually walk to each other in the neighborhood. And it was time to close Shabbat. Again, I must have been like seven or eight, quite young. And it was like, okay, all of a sudden it's time for Havdalah. And I kind of knew what Havdalah was, but it was more of like something you learned about in school. Hmm. But then all of a sudden we're in their kitchen and they turn out all the lights and the family paused everything and they came together around the candle and they were singing songs. And I was just like, wow, I want that in my life. Like, what a beautiful thing that everyone just stops what they're doing and they turn out the lights and they sing songs together as a family. I want that. And I think... When you asked, what is my earliest memory of a ritual? That is the one that stands out most distinctly in my mind. Hmm. That's quite powerful. So interesting that you like knew about it kind of intellectually or something that Jewish folks did at the end of Shabbat. Like you knew that they marked it some way and there maybe was a candle involved, but that there was something so different in experiencing it and like living it and witnessing it. And so did you go home and were you like, uh, can we do... Havdalah? Can we do that ritual every (laughs) Saturday night? Did you do that to your parents? No. Okay. (laughs) No, we didn't. I don't know why we didn't. I guess it just wasn't. My parents grew up with Christmas trees, so they had taken us quite a far stretch from how they had grown up. Mm. So I don't think I ever thought to like bring them up to speed. But now, now when I'm home at my father's house, he looks forward to Havdalah and we we pause everything and do Havdalah together, which is very sweet. But no, then it, it was still a matter of time before I had incorporated it. But it, you know, until this day, it sticks in my mind. That's, you know, over 30 years later, must have made an impact. Yeah, very much so. Do you still like it? Is it still a ritual that you that you gravitate towards? Like I have done is like top 10 for all Jews, I think. You know, there's something so sweet about... You think so? Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of the great sages talk about the difference of the light that is available in the world, right? We have the sunlight and the moonlight, but they say that the, the one that we come closest to each other is candlelight. So there's something about gathering around the candle. We know it from all the romantic movies, but there's something about stopping everything and sitting around a candle together, which is just has an effect all of its own. Yeah. Who doesn't love Havdalah? Yeah. Does anyone not love Havdalah? I mean, (laughs) I'm with you. I I find it to be the most earthbound ritual that we kind of have at our fingertips in the Jewish tradition, like that we do regularly that, I don't know, maybe you can, maybe you disagree with me, but that's what I feel. Like there's something that is uh, collectively calling us in a way in that moment that feels so tangible. It's like, Because for listeners that don't know, like Havdalah, you have the candle, you have wine or grape juice that you're blessing, and then you also have besamin, which are spices or sweet smells. And so, like, there's just this, I don't know, uh, I don't know what the word is, sensual? (laughs) What what is it? What is the the word? I think it connects us to the elements. Like, when you said earthbound, that's what I was going to ask you. You mean because it connects to the elements? Yeah. You know, and that's... Yeah, I think so. We've lost primal. so much of our, yeah, of our tribal primalness being, you know, Jews in the city or whatever, but that is still something that connects us back. And perhaps that's why we love it so much because we are a tribal primal people. I mean, everyone is. Yeah. Do you feel that way? <laughs> oh my yeah. God. I could go on and on about the fact how tribal we are. It's like a joke. <laughs> Jews are the original hippies. Check us out. We camped in the desert for 40 years. <laughs> our central service involves incense and crystals. Our whole religion is actually centered around crystals. I know. People don't know that. Wait, can you just like say that? Sure. People listening will not know that, even Jews. Yeah. Well, most of right? us. Okay, don't you think that? Let's go through all of it real quick. So first of all, we're the original hippies, right? Like like it or not, we are. We're all about peace and love. All of everything we pray for is peace and love. Everything. It's like it gets masked in, you know, kind of the way that Judaism has kind of become uglified. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Where it's like more about fear, but like our whole religion is centered around the fact that God loves us and we're supposed to love other people. We know that from the central tenet of love your neighbor. We're all about love. We're all about peace. You're not going to find a word more in the prayers than peace. Then 
in in the temple back in Jerusalem, we had this the central one of the central services was centered around incense and burning incense. And we could get into a whole psychedelic conversation because that's available too in the center of the temple worship, mm -hmm. right? Total hippies. And then what I meant by the crystals is that our high priest, the highest of the high priest had an outfit and he, it had a breastplate on it, which was covered in 12 different crystals. Right. But not only that, not only did the high priest wear crystals, but the truth is if you go into the center, 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 what's called the Holy of Holies in the temples in Jerusalem, there was a golden box. Right. And in that golden box was the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments were not like rock stone like you see in the movies. According to the sages, they were made out of blue sapphire. Mm. So literally our whole tradition centers around a man wearing crystals going into the central, <laughs> most holiest place where we're connecting to blue sapphire and gold, which is also, you know, mm. you, they call it the master element if you study crystallology. Right. So yeah, camping, crystals, incense, peace and love. And there's like, it just goes on and on. Yeah. We're like totally OG hippie tribal. I, I just, I just, you know, I would, Totally. I love that. I love that every analogy. Year. And we have a rain service. We literally I know, do rain I here. know. I, I know. I had people over and I talk, I, I was telling them about the rain dance and they all did not believe me. Yes. Suko. And I was like, no, 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 no. They're, they're, that is what we're, what, that is what we're doing here. Yeah, you know, totally. we're so detached from that like right. elemental piece, which is something that I so cherish about you as a teacher. I uh, haven't had the privilege of coming in person, although that's like on my bucket list. So, so we'll have to come. But seeing it, you know, via Facebook Live and whatnot, that you channel that original piece of Judaism that for whatever the reasons are, have been so lost and cut off from ourselves, um, from us. And fear. I love that. Fear. Fear. Yeah. Fear, fear of what you think. Um, I have a whole theory on it. Existential threat. No, I have a whole theory on this. Like, it's the same reason why people are afraid of Africa, because it's been associated with poverty. And in the Western mindset, poverty is unacceptable and only riches mean you're successful. So riches are associated with city life, which is then distanced from all of the earth-based practices. So if people are afraid of things that are connected to the earth, because they're often associated with poverty, I think this is like my whole theory of like, why are people so afraid of Africa, for example, because it's mostly poor. And so if it's poor, then it's bad mm. in our Western culture. And then we lose, and then, but those are the peoples, these are the peoples that are still connected to the earth are the ones that are poor. Mm. You know, we Westerners have moved away from earth practices because you don't need to stand in the river and wash your clothes. You stick it in a white box machine. Right. You don't need to, you don't need to, you don't need to farm, you know, and also our people's agricultural, right? You don't need to farm because you go to the market because you have money. But if you don't have money, then you have to be more connected to the earth. But we're afraid to be connected to the earth because I think we're afraid, personally, this is my far out personal theory. We're afraid of living a life that doesn't look in the Western view successful. Hmm. So I think that has moved us far away from many of our rituals and traditions. Tragic. Well, part of the part of the plan. We'll get back there. Right. I don't know. I mean, like for me, my experience is like, I mean, we went to the same Jewish schools and camps and all the things. Like we have a similar, you know, thing, similar teachers. And and I'm very grateful for my education. I, oh, yeah. I feel really grateful. And when we learned or when I remember my memory of learning about the Holy of Holies, let's say, I did not learn it in the way that you just described it a few minutes ago. Like, I did not learn about the crystals. I did not learn about the sapphire. Like, that was not part of it. It was more of just a historical, this is what it is. And we watched those videos. On, do you remember those videos? <laughs> anyway, I just have this memory of it. But it wasn't, it wasn't alive. Well, because we went to school in Beverly Hills. <laughs> <laughs> We went to school in Beverly Hills. But the, yeah, it wasn't alive. That's right. We didn't even have but access I, to Earth. <laughs> but we just had a building. There was like no outside or outdoor time at all. It's kind of funny. Um, but, you know, I, I think about it because for me, I found my spiritual, mystical awakening outside of Jewish life. That was my my journey, like meaning I was like studying to be a rabbi and I was like, wait, there's like more to this. And I was having a lot of health issues and really dealing with a lot of things. And I kept going to rabbi, rabbi, rabbi. No one could like really help me or give me a text that would help or anything. And I was so not embodied, you know, in that moment. And I someone invited me to like 
you know, something in Venice, like a circle, you know, I don't remember what the first one was, like a crystal bath and then this and then that. And I was like, oh, this is this is helping me. I am feeling nourished. I am feeling whole. Oh, I need to learn more. I'll learn some Reiki. I'll, you know, so that's what happened to me. And then I found out like years later, oh, Judaism has all this. So I was like undercover. Like I would hide my crystals under a bed. No. Because I didn't want people to see them. Seriously? Yeah, totally. I thought, <laughs> totally. I, I thought like, I thought it was like, is this, I know it's not Avodah Zarah, meaning like idol worship, but I know you know that I'm just explaining to other people, but I, <laughs> I was like, is it? I don't know. So that's, that was my experience. Well, you know, it, it can be if the person is attributing the powers to the crystals or the incense or the sounds themselves, right? Anything can be right, can be idol worship, right? It, it's, but as, like, right, it, but not inherently. It, and, and but it's it, not right. It's, it's not, not inherent, right? Yeah. And you found this Jewish. I don't want to. How do how do you want to label it? Is it mysticism, earth bat? Like, how, what's the good label for you? I don't want to put words in your mouth for it. Judaism. Great. You found Judaism. <laughs> this Judaism on your own. Uh, I think it helped that I I came into the fold. You know, I went right to Israel. You know, so I got to learn from people that mm. are deeply immersed in it. It's not like a it's not like a foreign practice that we're like reaching to touch it. You know, I learned it on the land, in the land, amongst people who dedicate their whole lives to it. It's not like a side hobby. It's not like this is my career and then let's study Judaism. It's like, this is it. This is, as you said earlier, the bee's knees. This is where it's at. So there's there's a big difference, the Torah and the Judaism that is taught and experienced in the Holy Land and outside the Holy Land. Because it's not, I, I feel like, yeah, that's my experience personally. It's not, it's not a bonus. It is. It's the everything. Yeah. So somehow that changes things. Hmm. And what made you decide to study more of it or to move to Israel or, <laughs> or do you want me to say Holy Land? Oh, um, no, all of it. It's good. Like what, what, what called you? Did you feel a call to, to, towards <laughs> it? It just ha happened, you know? What's, what's the rating on this podcast? Is it a PG, PG 13 or R? <laughs> you, you be you, you be you, you could be R. Right. So it was Neely. I don't expect anything else from you. Right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so it was a few things. First of all, I had an, I have an older brother who got involved uh, with the teachings of Rabbi Shlomo Karlibach in the beginning. And he was like this cool hippie dude and he was super popular and well-liked. So he was always a role model. So watching him become religious, it put a seed in my mind. But the truth is it was actually all the way back. There was a few seeds. Seed number one was around that same age of eight. There was this woman who taught at our school. Her name was Hadassah. I have no idea who she was. Don't know if you remember her. She had long hair. She was Israeli. Totally remember Hadassah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. We were at some school event and I saw her make a blessing on gum. Hmm. Now we knew blessings growing up, but I think we, at least I thought blessings were only for Shabbat. I didn't realize that you had to, you're invited to, you got to bless every time you had food. It just didn't click in my mind. So I saw her bless on gum and I was like, what? She's like, yeah, we bless on everything we eat. And in that moment I was like, whoa, I want to be like that. Fine. So that was seed number one. Seed mm. number two was watching my brother get religious and he was so cool and everything he was doing seemed like so deep. And also growing up in LA where everything was really, for me, I had a really superficial experience. You know, it was all about trying to look pretty, be rich, be popular, get the job at Abercrombie, which I did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you were really popular. Well, I was playing into the fears, you know, playing into wanting to be good enough, pretty enough, popular. I was playing in, you know, it was an ego pursuit, but that, that made my soul suffer very deep. And I didn't really have an alternative at that point. So there was, okay. So it was like a growing process, but I wasn't ready yet. And then I went to go live in Buenos Aires just for fun. Cause a friend was doing that. And I was at a music festival and everybody was taking drugs. And so I engaged and I popped in ecstasy with everyone else and they all had the best time of their life. And I went into Gehenna or hell mentally. It was horrible. Oh. It was awful. It was like oh. the worst thing ever. So sorry. And yeah, it's okay. Thank God. Because two weeks later, it was still working <laughs> in the worst way. You know, that's the thing about synthetic drugs and why I don't recommend that people do them because it's not a God-made thing. It's chemical and it can mess with you. So two weeks later, I was still in mental hell and I realized that I needed to do something different about my life or I just wasn't going to make it. And I happened to be living with two gay 70-year-old lovers in Buenos Aires. Mm. And one of them was Jewish, Jorge. He was about five feet tall at best. 
And he had not been to a shul in 50 years because when he had come out as gay, he was ostracized. Mm. So after two weeks of mental hell, I looked at Jorge and I said, let's go to shul. And we went arm in arm. And it just so happened I was living across from the central Chabad house of Buenos Aires, but I didn't know it because it was called Beit Jabad. Hmm. And I didn't, I, I was that disconnected. I didn't know. So me and Jorge went arm in arm. And that was the first Shabbat I kept. So that was the next seed. And from there, it started to, started to spiral. And I had been traveling a bunch, as you mentioned. And I ended up going back to travel in East Africa. And I did a beautiful, epic journey from Ethiopia down to South Africa. But when I went to South Africa, and this was kind of the final seed, I, I, I was with a boyfriend at the time, and he really wanted to take a motorcycle across the country, but we didn't have a motorcycle. So we decided, okay, we're going to buy a motorcycle, but it was only ready for us to pick up the next day. And I didn't know anyone in South Africa. So what do you do? Again, you call Chabad. So we called Chabad to see if we could stay there for the night. And they're like, well, you can stay in different houses since you're not married. So they took me into their house. They took him into another house. And we were supposed to stay for one night to get the motorcycle. And three weeks later, we were there eating delicious cakes every morning and going to Kabbalah classes every single day. Mm. And three weeks later, we were ready for our journey. And we did the journey. But they said to me, okay, Neely, next step is Israel. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to India. And they're like, no, honey. You're going to Israel. And I'm like, no, no, I'm going to India. But they won. They were right. They they seduced me with their Kabbalah classes, thank God. And uh, after that journey across South Africa, they sent me to Israel. And that's that's when I moved there. That was it. I was done. And then the, the deep journey began. So it was a fun, interesting journey of inspiration and falling deep into the depths of hell and being loved deeply by people who love God. Mm. That's how I ended up in Israel and in, and on fire. And then the fire never went anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So is it still, is it still on the same, you're still on the same, I don't know if it's trajectory, but you're still on the same train, same yeah. motorcycle. <laughs> like, is yeah. it, is it still moving? Is it still? Oh, hardcore. I mean, listen, thank God there've been some refinements, which are like some, you know, so I told you, as you know, I also work as a therapist. So you know, they say that if you want to, if you want to come close to God, the first thing you have to do is be aware of yourself lies. And so, you know, about a few years ago, I realized a truth, which was that much of my pursuit of God was really a ego pursuit, that I was trying to be good and be perceived of as good. Mm. So I had really reached really, really hardcore far into the strictest realms of Judaism, very, very strict in everything very black and white. And I, I had to check in with myself and realize, oh my God, like I'm doing this for my own ego because I thought that the more you keep the rules, the better you are. Uh. I was just keeping all the rules to the highest level. And it wasn't necessarily healthy for me because it's not who I am. I was stifling a lot of my personality. And also you don't have to keep all those rules to the strictest, 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 you know, those are, those are customs. So that kind of broke and now I've chilled out a little bit, but my fire and passion for God and Torah is definitely, definitely been in me and it's definitely still there. Yeah, for sure. What else is there? You know, I don't know. Like to me, that's <laughs> I everything. I don't know. That, that, it encompasses everything. It's it everything. Yeah. It teaches you that there's that which is beyond. It teaches you that you're not there until you love everybody deeply and completely. So that's an, I'm not going to finish that path till it, you know, even if I reach 120, even if I reach 120, like yeah. if I could get to the point where I love everybody and I'm not judging them, like then I could stop with the fire, but I don't, I think it's going to take that long. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's interesting because a lot of the guests that I've had on are not Jewish and something that I've recognized in myself when talking to them is for me, I felt like I had to like find my faith a little bit in God. Like I, it was like a process for me. I don't want to say that it was not natural because I know I had it as a kid. Like it's, I think it's innate for so many, you know, like it's just there, but I had to refine it, rekindle it, nurture it. And it was like a real process and it's ongoing still. I'm still like vacillate between faith and doubt all the time. And I've kind of labeled it like so Jewish of me, oh, you yeah. know, <laughs> like I'm like meeting like, right, wrestling and all that. This week's story portion, it's called Vayishlach is the name is when Jacob has to sort of find his true identity and his mission in life. And he ends up wrestling with this angel. And we don't, we don't even know if it's an angel or a human or a man, but essentially he's struggling with his faith in God and he struggles all night long, which is a metaphor for this time period. 
all night long where where we live in sort of darkness and truth is not fully revealed until the morning dawns mm. and basically it's a it's a metaphor for the struggle that we have until the you know i believe in this great messianic day where god will be totally revealed as one and will live in a world of peace but until then there is this perpetual struggle in our lives towards goodness towards light and so yeah, you're tuned in. Yeah, thank you. And I, I think what's so fascinating talking to you is that you really have the faith in you. That's that's not wavering. I'm sure you have moments where you waver, just like every other person, but maybe you don't. I don't know. Well, I mean, if I ever get angry, that's a wavering. Because if I was truly connected, then I would never experience anger because I would just believe everything was a perfect gift from God. So if I'm, no, so I'm definitely wavering because I experience anger and anxiety and frustration and judgment. So, you know, like I said, though, that's still 120, that's a lifetime journey. But do I believe in God? 1,000 million percent. Do I believe that God is good? 1,000 million percent. Do I know how to intellectually process that? No. Like, how could I say right now that the situation in Israel is good? But it is. But I can't say that out loud because that would make me inhuman and callous. And I don't feel that way. It hurts. Yeah. So, yeah, but but do I believe that it is good? Yes. Where does that come from, Neely? Well, it's, I don't, it's to me, it's like a math equation. Either God is good or he's not. And if God is good, then everything is good. And it's just my inability to see it. I mean, I don't know how to see it another way. I can't, What what's the alternative? I don't know. I think there's just a, compar- everyone does it differently, right? But um, I love that idea of just seeing the goodness, even when you can't see the goodness. You know, that it's like there and like knowing it's there, even when you feel like it might not be. Well, my alternative is God is not a good God. And I'm not choosing to believe that. Yeah. I also think that my my extreme, I'll call it extreme, even though I think it's basic, my extreme belief in the messianic era, that it will all be good, is very helpful. Right. Because that's a belief system that you hold. Like that that there is a day. Oh, yeah. And, right. I and think I don't, about it every I don't know day. if I hold that. Oh, I don't even know how to You do. Oh, my day. gosh. I carry a chauffeur with oh. me. I can show you. It's every day. Every day I think about. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's the whole purpose of my life. Why do you carry chauffeur? Ah, now, now we're talking ritual. <laughs> I carry a chauffeur because it says that. Okay. So I'll start with the basics. So we have a we have a belief system in Judaism. And, you know, it's obviously spread to Christianity. So we have billions of people in the world believing like this, that one day when the time has come, and in Judaism, that's after the year 6,000, which is really good news for us because we're in 5784, which leaves us with just a little over 200 years. And many historians don't actually believe it's 5784. They believe it's quite a few hundred years after that. So we're probably really close. And all the great rabbis of our generations have said we're like on the threshold of this day that the world will transform and that there will be peace, that there will be no more hunger and that we'll lay down our weapons. And to me, I carry a shofar because it says that the call of the shofar, the horn, the ritual prayer horn, uh, will indicate that the time has come. And someone, someone's got to blow that shofar. So I got to be ready. You know, what if it's my gig? What if it's my gig that I got to get, re- I got to, I got to be ready to blow it. And also carrying it brings attention. I bring it almost everywhere. Yeah. Just a little strange, but that's cool. I'm into it. Also, you know. I love that. It's like in your trunk. Yeah. <laughs> Front seat usually. But yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, it's like, has a little seatbelt on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Whenever I carry a Torah in my, go ahead. In your car. Sorry. You, you carry a tour in your car? <laughs> what, what, no, if I do, whenever I do, like for something, I always put the seatbelt on mm-hmm. and I'm like, mm-hmm. I feel so safe and good when mm-hmm. she's in the car. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, this is like really beautiful. I feel mm-hmm. really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. To me, listen, every day, every day can be a struggle in this world. Maybe, maybe not. Some days are just easy and good, but also in terms of our character traits, like even if it's a beautiful day and everything is flowing, like, there's always forgiveness. There's always kindness. There's always there's always not getting angry at the person in front of me. And to me, the shofar reminds me of my purpose in this world, which is to help bring about this day. Wow. So if I have awareness that the Jewish people have a job to bring this day, to bring this era, that's our job. Forget our work. That's our job. Right. And you believe that, right? But we grew we grew up in the same community. Yeah. That was not taught to us. Uh, was it taught to you? No, Did- I didn't know any of this. No. Judaism, I first of all, God bless our education. It was amazing. 
amazing. Loved. I came out loving Judaism. Oh, totally. And we came such good secular education. 100%. But I never heard of a temple. I never heard of a Mashiach. I never heard. I didn't even, I had no idea. I just thought it was like a really cute, like, rah-rah, shish, boomba, like, cheerlead for God. We have cute songs and traditions. I had no idea that we believed in it. And no, I have no recollection of any of this. But goodness, I feel like we... And you believe... Oh, yeah, fully. With every fiber... Yeah, like, every fiber of... There's not there, There's not one shred of doubt in me. Not... Never has been as... No. A hundred thousand percent, I think, Mashiach is coming. Yeah. And that my, and I, yeah, this is how I lead my life. This is my every day. This is when I like go camping and there's like a cold lake that I want to jump into. Mm -hmm. I say to myself, okay, Neely, what if it was this courage that could bring Mashiach? And then I jump in on that note. Mm. Like when I, like I also practice now like healthy psychedelic medicine plant journeys. Mm -hmm. And I do it for the sake of Mashiach because I have to face, I have to face my darkness if I want, I mean, I have to, we have to totally refine ourselves if we want that great day to come. Because I believe that the Jewish people are the nucleus of the world, not in an arrogant way, but in a responsibility way. So if I want peace in the world right now, I better get working on myself because it's going to have ripples and waves in the universe. What I do is very relevant. Can't just jerk around and turn on Netflix. I mean, God bless all the people that turn on Netflix. Yeah, no, Mashiach to me is, it's, an, it's a full-on obsession. I love it. I, you know, it's interesting because I also feel, it's something I actually write about and talk about a lot when I teach. Something is happening in the world. And this is pre-October 7th. We'll just say the last, right? Like, I'm going to say like 10 years, five years, yeah. whatever. I noticed it maybe like five years ago where it was like right before the pandemic. And I was like, something is deconstructing Something is being reconstructed, you know, like that we are all part of something so much bigger than any of us can imagine. And that like it's it's happening. And I sometimes feel in my like gut, oh, maybe we'll I think I think we might see some glimpses of a world that looks so much different than the world that we're living in right now. But I don't associate it with Mashiach in my head and um, Messiah. I, I don't know the way I think of it. And I'm not dismissing your your theology. I I I I hope I I'm just saying how I how I look at it is like this. I don't know. I, I like to call it like a third temple moment, but I don't think it's like a physical temple. I know that's oh, really? like very messianic, but like, yeah, that's what I call it. <laughs> like we're in a third temple moment of deconstruction, meaning we've built some sort of metaphorical temple, like Jews in general, like have uh, for however long it's been building, and like now that's like being torn like it's a third temple moment everything that we once thought was like judaism or worked is being actually ripped apart and deconstructed oh, yeah. like i feel that i sure. think a lot of us do and i think yeah. that applies to the world not just judaism but yeah. we're all living through that moment right now and that something has to be rebuilt and that like we're gonna rebuild it like we're all gonna be part of rebuilding it so it's like interesting because we're saying exactly, I think we're saying the same thing. I just don't have. Do you Mashiach not think there's going to be a third that. temple? That's a very funny question. That wouldn't work in court. Do you not think there's going to be a third temple? Wait, do you not? <laughs> do you not? I think there's going to be a third temple moment, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be a temple in oh, Jerusalem. Okay. okay. I think Jerusalem's part of it, though. I think this moment is like pivotal, truthfully, in all of it. But I don't, I don't see it as like a physical temple. But I think there's a third temple that we're building collectively right now. Regardless of actually, like, I believe, regardless of one's spiritual tradition, that like each of the traditions are like imperative to carving out that third temple That's why the temple third temple thing. building to me, proper building is imperative because it's called the house of love and prayer for all nations. Ah. As it always was. It was always for all nations. That's why, look, on Sukkot, you had the sacrifices for the 70 nations. Right. Every All the nations came. That's why even today in Jerusalem, you have the parade of the nations. In Jerusalem, in Sukkot time now, you have thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people from flying that every single country. 
dancing in the streets together. You have the Germans and the Japanese and the Africans. I mean, like, it's it's uh, it's an unreal thing to see. It's, I used to live on the street where the parade happened, and I just stood outside of my balcony blowing shofar, and they'd scream, like, China loves you! You know, Switzerland loves Jerusalem! And, like, yeah, dude, this is a... Un- hmm. Geula, redemption, Mashiach is not a Jewish affair. My teacher always taught me it's a universal affair because there's no redemption unless every single person is involved. So for me, the building is essential so that everybody knows they're welcome. It's like a big Thanksgiving. The whole family's got to come home. That's a big misconception people have about Judaism and Torah is that it's about the Jews. It's really not. The Jews are are, are here to bring everybody back together. It's like mama bear. Someone's got to gather everyone back together. Yeah. It's not about Jews. Jews are just, we just have a job. But people have a really hard time with that. I was actually just talking to someone the other day on the podcast about chosenness mm. and like, that's mm-hmm. like a real hard mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And I grapple with that hard too, myself. So Rip Shlomo Karliwach says that we're chosen to let everyone else know they're chosen too. Yes, I've heard that. It's a good one. We are chosen. We're chosen. It, you know, it's the same thing as my work as a therapist. It's like, if I do not learn to love myself, I have no job helping people try to love and accept themselves, but someone's got to do it first because you cannot learn to love yourself from somebody that doesn't love and accept themselves. So we have a job and we have to believe. But can't everyone else also be chosen? Or do you think that it's the Jews have to be chosen? Like there has to be like, it's part of it. There's a CEO of every cup. Someone's got to do the job and the job sucks. It means the whole world's going to hate us. And the job sucks. It means we're going to be busy loving them and they're still going to hate us. And the job sucks, which means it's not our goal to make millions of dollars and live in mansions and have pool parties. We have a job to do and we have work to do every single day. And we have to give 10% of our income and we have to support each other and we have to live lives of restraint and we can't eat in restaurants and we have to dress certain ways. And there's all these rules. It's, It's a lonely position and I don't have any shame in it. And I believe in it because I... And anyone can be a part of it. Anyone can, everyone, anyone can choose into this job. It's not a, it's not a closed job. It's there's as many CEOs as you want, but it's a hard job. Most people don't want it. What does it mean chosen? It means that in the beginning, when God decided that he wanted to give this role out, as our tradition says, that anyone could have had it, but nobody else wanted it because it's a sucky job. It's a beautiful job, but it's a sucky job. It's a lonely, sucky job and everyone's good. So imagine I propose to you now, I have this incredible job for you. You're going to change the world. Everyone's going to hate you. You're going to have eating restrictions. You're going to have your day navigated from the way you eat food to saying blessings after you poo to the way you put on your shoes to giving away your money. Uh, and you're going to be hated. Do you want the job? Right. So everyone said no. And, and I don't know why we said yes, but we did. And we still have that job. I have absolutely no shame in it because... The job includes looking up to everybody. The job includes my chosenness, being born into this family of Jews is not an arrogance issue. In fact, if it is an arrogance issue, then I'm getting the job wrong. Yeah. But I think that that's not how it feels for me or for others. I mean, I can see your position and I can feel it and I can identify with parts of it. And like that story as a kid with the chosen piece, you know, really resonated with me as a child, like deeply, actually, when I I remember learning about it and being really connected to it. And I think there's something about it, I guess, that feels limiting because I feel like if we're building a new world, it can't be about like one people being like, it has to be all of us. Somehow. It is all of us. That's the whole point. If it's somebody's got to stand <laughs> but up. But like and, all and... of us having equal I don't know. We are equal. Equal roles, equal parts. Being chosen doesn't mean being better. That's that's the misnomer. Is that an English word? Yeah. Being chosen does not mean being better, right? It's just a different job. Yeah. It's not, there's no, it's not better. There's no better. If I think I'm better, then I am already working against the rules that God has given me. Mm. I am not better than any Christian, Muslim, or atheist at all. If I believe that, then I've, then I've, then I'm out, I'm, I'm out of the job. I've made a mistake. It's not better. It's a job. And, and we've been doing that job for thousands of years. We've been holding morality. We've been holding ethical standards. We've been holding moral decency. You know, you, you, you support the porn industry, great. Well, you're not going to find the Jewish people supporting the porn industry because we care about our daughters. You know, I mean, you might find Jewish people doing everything, but I'm saying like you, right. any, any, any ethical issue in the world, we have to take a stance for ethics and morality. So I, I don't know. I have absolutely no, I have no shame and I only have pride and I have absolutely no arrogance. 
around it. Yeah. I mean, I have plenty of arrogance, <laughs> but not around the Jewish part. Yeah. And I don't mean to bring in any shame or anything towards you. I'll, I'll share my own my own hesitation in it. But I, I, I love that you're so certain. What's the hesitation? If it didn't mean you were better, what's the hesitation? Well, if we're assuming this chosen world, let's just like go with it right? For a minute, like for the sake of this conversation, I think we can be doing better. Absolutely. I think we are not right now. And I know I don't really want to talk about Israel only because sure. it's so... Yeah, yeah, it's no end. It's just no, exactly. So, but I think there's other instances where we are acting chosen from an arrogant place, right? Like maybe, like sometimes some of us. And who's we and who are we judging? I don't know. I don't have specific. I'm not. I don't want to put groups of people together because I don't. I think that that's not fair. I haven't heard any arrogance around it at all. But here's that's what's funny to me is you chose to be a rabbi, which makes you the top leader of the top Jew of your of your community. So it's a funny. Yeah, I mean, a funny piece there. Well. It's a it's a very funny piece. That, yes, we can we can dive it's like in. It's the same. It's the same dynamic. It's the same oh, dynamic. It's, it's it is it is a, it is a similar dynamic. <laughs> you chose That's to be true. the chosen one. I think <laughs> you chose to be the leader. Yeah, with reluctance and rebellion. But yes, I did. I did. Yeah. Um, but it's yes. so I don't. But you're not. Do you think you're For better sure. than your congregants? No. No. Do you think you're holier than your congregants? No, not at all. Right. But you have a very important job to do, and it puts you alone and hated and. Same, same. Yeah. No, other people don't want that job. Don't make me be the rabbi. I don't want to be the rabbi. I think the part where we could do better is caring about all people, not just our people. I get we have to like take care of our family, you know, in like in the ways that family dynamics work, right? Like if you're like kids are in trouble, you like take care of your kids for right? Like that's how life works. That's psychologically very sound. But where do you even get that? I mean, it's a beautiful thing to say because it shows your care. But I would say that if we did statistics here, we'd find that Jews are reaching out and doing moral and ethical work and generosity. If we did stats, I would imagine that we're probably doing a fantastic job because it's it's in us to be charitable and to be helpful and to do kindness. That's what we're raised with. So I, I, I don't know where you would get those stats that we, obviously we could do better. Obviously, that's our whole premise. Always do better. Always strive for better but I, I don't have, if I would put money, I would put money on the fact that we care about other people. I mean, we <laughs> we send power and water to the people that want to kill us. I mean, if, I mean, I don't, I don't know what, who better we're talking about. Everybody I know is doing, you know, kindnesses to the whole wide world. You can't get my sister to stop charging your credit card for every charitable organization that comes her way. And none of them are Jewish, you know? So I don't, I just don't know where yeah. that claim is. But yeah, should we do better? Yeah. Should we love each other more? For sure. Absolutely. I just... Quick question about the temple. I just... Quick question. Oh, yeah. My do favorite. you think in the third temple, it's like sacrifices and stuff? No. Like, do you want that stuff back? Or can we like... No. Can we well, get I'm rid a vegetarian. of that? I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> I, I haven't killed an <laughs> so animal. you're not into it. <laughs> no. But thank God I have Rev Cook to back. Because I'm just like a pea brain, you know. Like, I just because I study Torah all day for 15 years doesn't... That's an exaggeration. Just because I engage in Torah and Judaism for a long time doesn't mean I'm anywhere on the scale of any of the great sages before me. But thank God there's Rav Cook. And Rav Cook, being the first rabbi of Israel, yeah. said in his opinion that him. we'll have yeah, we'll have a, a mincha offering, which is made of flour and water. You know, mm. the sages explained to us that in the Garden of Eden, we were not carnivorous. Only in the time of Noah after the flood, then there was a, a shift in the world where we were permitted to eat meat. It wasn't the utopian vision that God had set out. Adam and Eve were not eating the animals in the Garden of Eden. So I believe it will return because I believe our like our sense of desire will be fixed in the messianic times and we will no longer... I mean, look, you can already see in the world right now, like you can be a vegetarian and eat the most delicious meat tasting foods without killing anything. So personally, I do not think in the temple we will need to kill anything because I think all killing will end. So if all killing ends, then all killing ends. And God can make miracles and make impossible meat that is even better than... Do you remember Morningstar Grillers? Those were great. But now, 10 <laughs> years later, we have Impossible Burgers. What's going to be in another 10 years? Yeah. Like, I don't think that... No, I do not think... Personally, I do not think we'll need to sacrifice... Uh, we'll need to do the real work, which is our heart, sacrificing the the desires of our heart rather than killing mm. animals. It doesn't add up to me personally. But if it does happen, 
then I'm sure there'll be a good reason for it that I don't understand. Yeah. I was just also thinking how prevalent Messianic liturgy is part of our tradition in a way that like, I'll just speak for liberal Jews, right? Those are my people, right? Aren't aware of, right? I I just did a bris, right? (laughs) We need chair for Elijah. Why do we need Elijah? Um, Well, because this baby may be bringing Mashiach right now. And like, that's like for real in our tradition. Like I said that to them. So I'm just like reflecting back. And then they're like, really? Yeah, it's like part of a dream, you know, that was like created. And, you know, that's how I, that's the language I use for people. But it is, there's so many times, you know, Havdalah each week, going back to your favorite ritual, right? That we do that. Well, everything we do, actually, it's not a dream. It's our job. It's meant to be, you know, that say that when we go up to heaven, we'll be asked a few questions. Did, did you deal honestly in business? Right. Did you set, I'm sure you studied this in rabbinic school. Did you set times to learn Torah wisdom? And did you await the Mashiach every day? That's, it's, it's like a top three. So yeah, I don't think it's a dream. I think it- Right, which I translate to that part. I actually taught that text like about a year ago to a group of people and to a group of women. And I was like, they're like, Mashiach, you know, like a lot of triggers on it because people feel that. And I'm like, yeah, like I think what that's asking really is, did you live in a world where you wanted to build a better world, where you were like living as if it's possible for a world to be better than it is today? Which I guess is the same thing. It's just that it it's shifting the language maybe. I don't know. Maybe it is different, but... It is shifting the language. I think people are afraid of believing in the supernatural. And I think that our religion is premised on the supernatural. And removing that is a big danger. And what we see what's happening, we're just losing people left and right, you know, because it's not cool. You know, it's not... I don't I don't know what it is. We could have a whole another eight hours on it. But the supernatural is like what is... It's everything, though. Right. Well, I think the, the, issue, the issue with... Uh, child-proofing the language, and I don't mean that in any insult, it's just the words that come to me. It's almost like if we want to make Judaism liberal or modern-friendly, we have to take the belief out of it. And to me, that's like... Many times I go, people will ask me to speak in synagogues that are not Orthodox, and I actually have to be very careful about my use of the word God, because God has become a four-letter word. And to me, that's the tra- that that's tragedy. Because if I can't talk about God openly, if I can't talk about supernatural, if I can't talk about my belief, not my belief, our tradition's belief in a great day, then I'm taking God out of the picture, and it's just a cute moral practice. That's not that's not the religion that we inherited. So, oh yeah, I, I went through rabbinical school for years without having like we had conversations about God theologically, like from a philosophical lens, academic lens, but not from a, what do you believe? What do you feel? What do you connect to? What is that? Like, why are we doing this? And so I like did my thesis on that in rabbinical oh. school. I was like, oh, we have to like teach. Yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I need this. And if I need this, I'm about to be a rabbi and I haven't had it. Right. None of us are having it, right? If I, yeah. you know, meaning I went through all the systems of our community and like I didn't get it. So this needs to be experiential. It's not just some book that you're reading and like, oh, well, Kant says this about it. You know, <laughs> like that can't be what it is because that's never what it's been for our people. But really, I think for all people, like God is so much more. And it's and it's totally cut off from our from my world. Yeah. Yeah. God bless everyone's good-hearted intentions. It's the weirdest of the weird. <laughs> yeah, it's the weirdest uh, of the weird for me. I don't know. I mean, I know God is triggering when I teach. I I'm really careful. I'm like, God, you can insert what you want when I say God. Like, you could say Hashem, you could say divine, you could say if you want to say like source, the universe, goddess right. version of God, source of life, universe, higher power, like insert what you need when you hear that, when you hear a word. I use divine usually. I don't know. I find that one to work for me and for a lot of people, but it's it's something. My like last question, and I want to talk to you all day, I guess is like what I want to say, but because I want to learn, I also want to like learn from you because I think what's so interesting to me is whenever I've seen you teach, I'm like, oh, that's so fascinating. I literally was reading the Parsha and wondering about that. <laughs> and you're like the only teacher that's like taught. And I'm like, where can I find stuff? And then you you talk about it. I'm like, ah, exactly. Like, that's so amazing. So I feel like we're, I don't know, kindred spirits on some sort of journey and maybe doing it differently, but like some parallel world on that. So it feels really exciting to me. But I really want to know, like, if there's rituals that you return to um, that like, 
hold you, like contain you, you know, in the midst of whatever, it's there. The most basic, <laughs> coffee and prayer. That I can't, yes. there's no, the most basic ritual, talking to God. That I have, listen, I'm not a mother, so I can't say that I would be able to be as dedicated to this practice if I were. I hope I will, please God. But my personal ritual, which is, there's no, there's no day, I can't, I can't even imagine a world where I didn't wake up, make a coffee, go outside with my prayer book and pray. And I don't mean a long amount of time. Like for me, I dedicate about 20 minutes to it and all of it really centers. So I say like, you know, a few of the the basic framework prayers of what's called the Shacharit, the morning prayer, but it all centers for me around the moment in the Amidah, the central silent standing prayer, where it's called the Shema Kolenu, where we ask God to hear our voice. And in that moment, I take the prayer book and I put it down and I put my hands on my skin, on my heart. And then I just start talking to God. Mm. I cannot imagine having a day where I didn't start with talking to God because the because it's like it's so obvious I don't have words to articulate it. Mm. Um, because everything is about my relationship with God, because God is the one unfolding my whole day that I'm co-creating with. It's like if you have a business partner and you don't have a meeting to check in, like what are you even doing that day? God is my business partner, you know? So it's like if I don't speak to God first thing in the morning before anything, the coffee is like a little, you know, just way for me to make it sweet, but it nothing makes sense. Do you drink the coffee before the prayer? The praying? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. let's be... Let's be real. I have a few sips in the in the first uh, yeah, yeah. psalms as well, no, which is probably yeah. not. It's probably not no. a, the best in the rules, but um, I love uh, it. Yeah, yeah. Pr- I love it. Pr- everyday prayer. I can't imagine how someone isn't. I cannot believe that there. I can believe it's like this dynamic. I can't and I can't believe that people cannot talk to God every day. It just doesn't add up to me. Like what are you, then? What what matrix are you in? I do not understand. So to me, the ritual of daily prayer is that's not, I, I don't, I mean, I talk to God all day long and right, without right. starting the day with talking to God and checking in and thanking God, you know, it starts as simple as thank you for my coffee. Thank you for my feet. Thank totally. you for my pajamas. Thank you for this time. Thank you for last night's sleep. Thank you for my comfy bed. And then, okay, God, I have a client today. Please help me be a really good therapist. Okay, God, please help me work out today. Please help me be kind to this person that I was mean to. Please right. help me. So without that, I don't. I would. I think I would just feel lost, and yeah. it, it would just be weird. It's like it's like it's like your kids waking up in the morning and ignoring you and not saying hi. It's like, wait, what? Yeah, I put you in this I house. It. I packed you your lunchbox. I'm gonna pick I you up it. from school. How are you not gonna talk to me? I so, love it. That's my. I love that's it. My ritual. It's great yeah. ritual. It's a good reminder for people and a good way to start one's day for sure even even two minutes even just standing with your hands on your heart and saying hi god hi god that's it hi god help that's good enough yeah Yeah, totally hi god thank you help (laughs) hi god thank you help i like that yeah yeah amazing okay we have to part but i'm sending so much love and gratitude for you and your torah and your wisdom and the way you walk in the world which i think is inspiring for Thank you. so many. Thank you. Me. And if I offended yeah. anyone through my fierce theologies, please know that it's only a, a mistake of my own personal character. It's not a reflection of God or the Torah. I hope that episode made you think, made you feel, made you connect more deeply to yourself. As always, DM us. Let us know what you're thinking. We want to hear it. Ritual for this week. Going to give you a couple. One is listen to a shofar blast. I think it's a good one. And if you don't want to actually listen to a shofar, you can't, I mean, you could find that on YouTube and shofar, by the way, is something we usually traditionally use um, on the high holiday season. So like that can definitely wake you up then, but listen to it. Now, why not see what that like wakes up, wakes, stirs your soul, wakes you up, whatever it is. I think do that. If you don't want to do shofar, another suggestion is actually to like listen to a piece of music that really stirs your soul, wakes you up and listen to that like every day this week and see what happens, what's stirring in you, what comes up. The second ritual I want to recommend is actually, it's sort of like a manifestation ritual. I think we need more 
manifestations, collective manifestations. I think our world is really into the individualized manifestation and that's great. You can find so many people on Instagram in the world doing this work. I I don't think that's a bad thing. I I could use some, uh, you know, working on the manifestation stuff. It's beautiful. So do that for yourself. But what, what I actually want you to do is light a candle, do it in a time where there's stillness. You don't have to light a candle. You know, I always, you know, me and the candles, me and the candles, or remember, it doesn't have to be a candle. You can use aromatherapy. You can just sort of use a tapestry. You can sort of metaphorically draw a circle, somehow like create a space that is a little more sacred for you. And I invite you to actually write what you dream of for the collective third temple, meaning maybe for you, that's a, that's a physical space. Like Neely was saying in the episode, but maybe for you, it's actually what you hope for. Like, what do you dream of for all of us? What do you want for the world to make this world a better place? Write that out. And if you're not a writer, draw that out, feel that out. Imagine with your, with your mind's eye, a world of your dreams, a world of our dreams. I think we need to start believing in the possibility that we can reconstruct a world that is far more profound than the world that we are in right now. Not to say that there won't be things, there always will be things. We are human beings. It's messy here, right? We're on planet Earth to play around and play with the mess. But there has to be a way where we are more cared for collectively, where we are taken care of. And don't get bogged down on labels or political affiliations or any of that. I'm talking just basics. What's your dream? I want to hear that dream. So let me know what it is. And uh, when you're done writing it, sort of connect in, connect into your heart. And sometimes I like to say, may it be so, or amen, or please, (laughs) whatever works for you. As a reminder, please make sure to share this podcast with a friend or rate it or subscribe if you haven't yet. And I am also going to be offering spiritual care circles really soon, another round of them people have been asking, as well as new moon gatherings in person and other in-person gatherings. So please, please, please join us. I'd love to see you. All right. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Ritual House podcast. Please be sure to follow the show on whichever platform you are listening to this right now so that you'll never miss an episode. And as we grow the show, we want to hear about the rituals that are meaningful to you. We invite you to share your ritual practices with us. You can DM us at theritual.house on Instagram or find us on our website, www.theritual.house. Also, as a new show, your feedback is really important to us. Please head on over to Apple Podcasts and write us a review. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend? We'll see you back here next week to continue the ritual revolution. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a week filled with intention and attention. Take good care.